Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week is a very first for the Liturgy Guys. We have a guest, and it is the one and only Bishop Robert Barron, who was in town and was nice enough to come sit down with us and talk about what it is like being a bishop and what does the church say a bishop is. So without further ado, episode 42 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Uh, so this week we have a very special guest for the liturgy guys. We welcome uh, Bishop Robert Barron. Welcome. Great to be with you guys. Yeah, and we usually uh, we usually have six candles lit at this table, but because there's a bishop here, we have a seventh <laughs> well, candle. Seven. He's not the ordinary, so we don't. Really oh, need so the I'll put six it six and a half. Okay. I'll extinguish it right now. <laughs> One second. All right. So now, now we all, we go back a long time. You know, Bishop Barron when he was Father Barron was. Faculty member here at Mundelein, friend, became rector, and then the Holy, well, the Holy Spirit whisked you away from us, but right. happy That's, to have you back. Great to be back. I love coming back to Mundelein. And uh, yeah, we've been buddies for a long time and uh, shared a lot of experiences and uh, talked through a lot of different things. And the problem when you became famous is I can't talk about you without sounding like a name dropper. That's <laughs> it. You say, oh, I went out to beer with uh, Joe, who cares? Oh. Bishop Barron, oh, name dropper. Yeah. <laughs> I knew him before name dropping was It's like that when I mentioned thing. you, Dennis. No, not yet. We'll give it, we'll give it some time. <laughs> okay, so we're going to be talking today about uh, documents on the bishop. Do you want to give a better intro there, Dennis? Yeah, well, mostly I, I was hoping that you could share some lived experience and your theological knowledge about the nature of what a bishop is. I think, you know, in this kind of anti-hierarchical world and people don't trust political figures and leaders, they just think bishops are sort of cranky old guys who, I don't know, just make rules and live in an office. And, and that's really largely true. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, everybody's got administrative tasks. But, I mean, right. when, when you read the documents of what the church says, especially the documents of Vatican II and the Catechism, there's this high, high theology of being a bishop, especially when you think about being a successor of the apostles. You know, I was talking with Kevin earlier. Kevin. And um, we said, imagine if you had to be the successor of Bill Gates or the successor <laughs> of Steve Jobs. Oh, yeah. Or the successor of Sammy Sosa or whoever. Like, that's well, a hard Sosa might be a little easier well, yeah, in Chicago. You, you, can get, uh, you can get pumped up with some things on that. Mm-hmm. But, like, to be a successor of the apostles, like, what, is that, what does that mean for you? Well, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because you know, before you are ordained a bishop, you have to do uh, a canonical retreat. So I did a retreat actually up here at Mundelein. For a week, and you meditate on a lot of these texts and biblical texts and so on. And the phrase that kept coming back to me over and over again, all the ways bishops are described, was successor of the apostles. And not so much in the juridical sense, that's part of it, but what kept coming back to me was okay, this little band of people that formed around Jesus and who knew Jesus intimately, whom he formed, he formed their minds and their hearts who ran from him, betrayed him, denied him, all those terrible things, but who then, through the power of the Spirit, become these fiery witnesses. But that idea of the inner circle around the Lord and the personal contact with them, 
That's what struck me. That to be a bishop is to be a successor of that little band, you know, that revolutionized the world. And now from that intimacy with Christ, you get all the other derivative ideas about what a bishop is and what he does. But I think fundamentally it's that relationship, it's that friendship, the, the intimacy with Jesus. You've been called into that circle. And you know, again, not for privilege's sake, but it's, it's for discipleship's sake. You've been called into that intimate uh, friendship with the Lord. Uh, I think that's the heart of it. Yeah. You know, we had that little book a few years ago, Heaven is for Real. You remember that? But the yeah, kid sure. who had yeah. theoretically experienced it. Oh, heaven. yeah, and they made a movie on and that. And everybody too, wanted right? to ask him, oh, what was it like? Who did you see? And it's like the apostles talked to Jesus, and he, they told him, asked him stuff, and he told them stuff, and then they told people, and they, yeah. this treasure of heavenly stuff gets carried on from one generation to the next. And then and, the other thing, too, but of course, apostle, apostelling means to send. So you're the successor of those who've been sent. So there's a really missionary side, I think, to being a bishop. And for me, it was easy because I was sent away from home and family and friends and everybody, sent to this place I knew nothing about on mission. But I think of my life that way now. Every day, I'm, I'm, I'm being sent someplace. Um, so that the apostleship dimension of it struck me most powerfully. When you read the documents, it isn't just, hey, we need some... You know, flunky to keep this operation going. It's the Holy Spirit has chosen you. I mean, do you feel that, or is it, does it feel like you know the Pope told told you you needed this? No, I remember um, right after I was I was named a bishop. I had not been ordained yet, and Cardinal Supich. He wasn't Cardinal at the time, but Archbishop Supich called me, and I said something like, "How did this happen?" You know, because I was being sent to Los Angeles, which is kind of unusual, and I didn't mean that in a challenging way. I just sort of like, "How did this happen?" And he said. Well, the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I said, well, yes, I agree with that, who works through secondary causes. But nevertheless, that's true. If you don't believe that, then you should just go home. Uh, so when I get the call from the apostolic nuncio, and he says, the Holy Father's appointed you, I mean, unless you're, you're dying, I think you, you say yes, because you're confident that the Holy Spirit, working through these secondary causes, has indeed chosen you for this mission and for this intimacy with Christ. And so, yeah, is the right answer, because the Holy Spirit called you. You know, the intimacy uh, is, I think, a great word to describe it. We, at the Liturgical Institute, we're formed to see things sacramentally, that yeah. when, you, when you encounter something external, there's this uh, unseen reality. And how the Catechism describes it as these early apostles you're talking about, and you, by extension, uh, become sacramental signs of Jesus and have the power of Christ. And so what the bishop is, is uh, uh, in, in a real substantial way, um, a, a, a presentation of Jesus Christ himself. Now, there's an intimacy for you that when you see yeah. uh, the bishop, you see Christ. Yeah, and, and you do sense it, you know, especially in those liturgical contexts. So... Almost every day, I'm doing something of, of some liturgical significance, and you know, I'm in the vestments of a priest, but also wearing the mitre and carrying the crozier. And I suppose if you're you know hung up on on ego, you say, "Hey, look at me!" But see, the whole idea there, it is meant to draw attention to you. There's no question about that. And everyone, oh, oh, who's that? Oh, look who's here! And oh, even as you're walking toward the church, people notice. So that's something different. Good because it's not. Robert Barron so much it's Christ you know and it's Christ's church and it's the one chosen by the Holy Spirit to perform this task has arrived and that's okay that's part of what it means and then when you're performing that liturgical function you're doing it of course in persona Christi Capitis in the person of Christ the head 
uh, I, I sense that very strongly as a as a bishop. It's true of a priest too, but I think as bishop, even even the mitre, which emphasizes headship, you know, my mentor Cardinal George talked a lot about headship, your head of of uh, of the liturgical you know assembly. Christ is head of his body, the church, and and even placing that mitre on your head, I think is meant to draw attention to that mm -hmm. fact. There's an expression called uh, uh, par excellence, par excellentium, that's usually reserved for to describe the presence of Jesus in the blessed sacrament. Right? Mm -hmm. So Jesus is present yeah. uh, in the minister, in the assembly, when the word is proclaimed, but he's present par excellence in the sacrament. It's in some document recently, I saw it dis uh, used to describe the bishop, that he is the priest par excellence. Yeah. And that really, uh, I Whoa. think, conveys I like you know, the, uh, the, the reality that, that a bishop is. Yeah, we talk about the fullness of priesthood, you know, so I, I, I don't kind Consecrate in a way that's you know more efficacious than the way a priest does, but there's a fullness of the priestly, prophetic, and kingly office that the priest, in a way, is is participating in the fullness that the bishop uh, has. And again, that's not meant to draw egotistic attention. It's meant to signal this this uh, proximity, this participation in Christ, the successor to those who were in his intimate company, and therefore carry his office, Christ Himself. If you really want to go par excellence, is the priest, prophet, and king, um, and the bishop is sharing in that intimacy. Yeah, that's the thing that I I think I don't know my generation or back or maybe just in the church in general tend to see things in terms of power structures, right. who's running it, who's not. Right. Yeah. But to really say, okay, Jesus after the ascension, how is this work going to be continued? How is yeah. it? he says, I'll give it to people to do this and the power to do it. So forgiving sins is Jesus's power given to the stewardship. I think the uh, catechism calls it the steward of the grace of the supreme priesthood. That's a really good image. Yeah. Like, it's not yours, but you've been given it to, to give out or, and use. No, to your first point, I've been saying that for years, that uh, I think the most influential of the 19th century philosophers was not Marx, it was Nietzsche. And in our culture especially, that everyone's sensitive to power and power games and power struggles and who really has power, who's being oppressed and denied power. So we tend to read the world through that Nietzschean lens, which is distorting, especially when you look at the church. And you see the church is a power game, you know, and who's rising and falling and who's... But, you know, we read it all through the lens of Christ crucified. <laughs> you want to see the headship of Christ. That's where you look. And so if you want to aspire to that, off you go, you know. So, uh, oh, Lord, <laughs> we want to be at your right and left when you come into your glory. Okay, you know, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink from? That's the central. We had thing. a seminarian here years ago. Maybe you remember his name. He was from Czech Republic, well, Czechoslovakia then, and he told about how he couldn't go to confession anywhere. He had to sneak across the border from the communist country mm. to the non-communist country, so he'd go to confession. And I paused for a second. I'm like, if we didn't have priests, we wouldn't have confession. Wouldn't have Eucharist. Yeah. You don't go to confession sometimes if you're lazy or whatever. People don't go for years at a time, but when they need to, if they couldn't get it, where would you be? Baptism. Confession, yeah. Eucharist, last rites. It's just this amazing presence of, of God in the world through this hierarchical priesthood. And for 2,000 years, that's the miracle of it. All the other institutions have come and gone, faded away. And yet, deeply mysteriously, this mystical body continues. And uh, I don't think we have an adequate sense of that. Over, over 2,000 years, across cultures, across time, across continents, this mystical body has endured. And the bishop, you know, the successor of the apostles, is the one that's, that's charged with uh, passing this tradition on. 
What, what was it like when you were ordained to be a priest and then, you know, elevated to a bishop? Because there are li- different levels of authority. Was that kind of, were you remembering being ordained to the priesthood as kind of similar to then becoming a bishop? Yeah, yeah, I did. I did flash back to it. It was, you know, 30 or 29 years earlier. Um, what struck me, when I was ordained a bishop, you know, I, I was sent away, as I say, from everything I knew, everybody I knew. I'm in this... Los Angeles Archdiocese. I knew nothing about it. I'm in this cathedral that I, I barely knew. The man ordaining me, uh, Archbishop uh, Gomez, at the time, I barely knew him. And so I remember it as being sort of a, a, a little bit lost. I was a little bit lost. I also remember the oil, because part of the ceremony is the, the ordaining uh, prelate puts oil on your head, and he put it on my head in copious amounts. <laughs> and it was running down. It was like the psalm, you know, running down the... And the through collar. the beard of yeah. Aaron, it's just running down my face and then into my eyes, and so I started weeping, not from <laughs> sadness or being moved. I was just so irritated, and so people um, said to me afterwards, "I was so beautiful to watch you, you know, crying." I said, "Well, I wasn't." But but see, I kind of like the fact, and I still have the they put the zucchetto on then on top of your oily head, and it's I have it still soaked with oil, and, and I can still smell it. Now a year and a half later, but I, I like the fact that I remember the oil, because there's something about that and ordination, the chrism, and it goes right back to Christ, of course, the Mashiach, and through Christ back to David, and being anointed by Samuel. You know, so all of that is what most stays in my mind about the bishop ordination. Mm-hmm. I guess if you did an immersion baptism, somebody might say, "Oh, that took your breath away." You know, no, it's because I was underwater; That's I couldn't right. breathe. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what is your actual diocese here? Because as an auxiliary, you have to be the ordinary, so to speak, of a real diocese, right? Right. Every bishop has got to be bishop of a place, right. you know. And uh, so I'm the uh, titular bishop of Macriana in Mauritania. Now, Mauritania was the ancient Roman province of North Africa. So um, Hippo, St. Augustine's diocese, was in that area. And I did look it up with the help of uh, Father Larry Hennessy here, had a, <laughs> who teaches patristics, and he has a, a book with a map of you know the ancient Christian churches, and we found it. And it's not that far from Hippo. So I, I kind of like that association with uh, St. Augustine, but it's a church now that's long ago faded away. I will probably not be reclaiming it anytime soon. <laughs> so but there, I, there are no Christians there anymore? No, basically. as far as I know, okay. there are no Christians. So, so if a no, nascent Christian community grows up, you have to move back there? And you know, it's as you bring this up, I flash back again to Cardinal George, my mentor, who used to say, you know, someday Chicago will be one of these forgotten dioceses. You know, the church might fade away here and it'll flourish uh, in, in Australia and Antarctica and will be, uh, will be one of these long forgotten dioceses. It was typical Cardinal George way of saying, you know, the church is greater than any of its particular instantiations, and and the Holy Spirit is greater than than our nationalism, etc. But uh, Macariana and Mauritania is my titular see. And the reason you you have a titular see, right? Is this this uh, nuptial imagery of uh, uh, of Christ, uh, the the bridegroom and his bride, the church, yeah. and you're I, you're in the person of Christ, the head, and this is your yeah. You got to be connected to a place, married to a people, and that's why I'm, I'm wearing this ring, which was also given to me the day I was ordained, and it's got the Cairo on it. Of course, the Christos, the Mashiach, so that calls to mind that whole thing. But it's a wedding ring. And uh, it's in the instruction that bishops get. They talk about the mitre and the crozier and all this. But I remember it really struck me, and I followed it, that the ring should always be worn, that you always, it's like a wedding ring, 
So I take it off to you know wash my hands maybe, but otherwise I, I wear it all the time because it's meant to be the reminder to me that I'm married to, uh, you know, ultimately it's the people of, of Santa Barbara and Los Angeles. I'm, I'm married to them. You know, this this may be uh, treading into the the category of liturgical nerd type of uh, uh, <laughs> oh, information. But, That's what we're here for. But, <laughs> That's what we're here for. But, but a lot of these things we're talking about, uh, a hierarchy and the marriage of the church become, I mean, this is the sacramental principle that these things then become expressed externally. And one of the, a, a very simple way, in the first edition of the ordination rites, it was the ordination of deacons, priests, and bishops. But in the second, the current edition, it's called, just in the title, the ordination of a bishop, priests and deacons. And so what they've done is just simply in the title, in the sacramental way it's trying to express, there's a single bishop, like there's a single Jesus surrounded by presbyters and deacons, and he's at the center, the heart of, it's not hierarchy. It's interesting. Dr. Fagerberg used to talk about hierarchy is not H-I-G-H-E-R. Right. It's, it's, it's an order of priests, so it's not you're climbing Heroes. the ladder. Right, right. And so mm-hmm. it's the bishop who's at the center, and everything kind of radiates out uh, from him. No, that's good. I didn't realize that about the uh, the title of the text there, but that's a very good point, and I, I've tried to make that too. That it's just we're tripped up by English. Hierarchy. Oh, you're higher than I am. Who do you think you are? But it means rule by priest, by the by the sacred figure. And you're right. So in the in the ordained hierarchy, the bishop would be the one who most fully represents Christ the head, Christ priest, prophet, king. And then the other... Uh, uh, dimensions of that office would kind of radiate out from there and then finally radiating out to the mystical body you know who gather around uh the liturgy but that's that's a very good point it's not it's not a nietzschean power game we're talking about but it's a sacramental um worldview and the catechism says that uh, the bishop bishops have a personal character. They're collegial and that they work together, but there's a personal character that the, there's actually a person you talk to to decide how you're governed, taught, and sanctified. That it's it's not just an arbitrary system of, of laws or whatever. And someone shows up and is kind to you, loves you, yeah. to you. That's a whole different thing than just obedience to some faraway power. You know, when I, also going back to that retreat that I, I was talking about, I read uh, the Aquinas text on. Uh, the episcopacy, you know, and Thomas there talks about the bishop is the one who's in the state of active perfection, and of course that makes everyone nervous right away. You see, what he meant was no a, pressure. A religious, so think of, of the you know the humblest monk is in the state of, of perfection. What they're about is is finding you know this great union with Christ. What Thomas means is the bishop is in the state of active perfection, meaning it's not for his own sake. He's not meant just to to rest, as it were, in the perfection he's been given, but now to share it, you know? So it doesn't mean, oh, look, what a great guy I am. I'm, I'm trying to be as morally upright as I can, but it means I've been given something that's meant to be then given away. And that stays with me a lot, active perfection. So a lot of my life is that. I'm preaching, I'm governing, I'm sanctifying, I'm, I'm sp- spreading whatever perfection I've been given in Christ. Uh, it's an apostolic role there. The bishop's role is apostolic, um, apostolic, and you've been sent. You know, um, so you're you're like a monk in a way. Aquinas says you're like a, a religious in a way. Uh, so as a diocesan priest, I'm not a religious, but yet as a bishop, you become something like a religious, but with an active orientation. And there's some father imagery in a lot of the documents too. You know, you think a father. At least I hear from parents that they. 
are impatient with their kids and they want to be more patient. They that, want wasn't, to, that was not me. They, they, they want to be holier. A, a lot of priest friends tell me they hear that in the confessional or in counseling a lot that the parents, oh, I was impatient with my kids or I wasn't kind to my spouse. And there's sort of an active desire to be better so you can yeah. be better for others. Right. I imagine that's the kind of local version of a bishop's yeah. role. Well, father was always the image I, I love when I was a seminary rector. I tell the guys, you'll be called father, and that's the best title because it names most fully what you're about. I mean, you're a spiritual life giver, so through the sacraments and everything else. So the bishop, maybe, again, par excellence, would be the spiritual father of a given community. It's kind of like we've, we've talked about the cathedral being the par excellence of the diocese yeah. liturgically because the cathedral is supposed to be having the full choir, the full examples of liturgy, and you're saying exactly what yeah. it's similar to what the bishop is supposed to do. Right, right. And you know, so as an auxiliary, I would participate in the fullness of Archbishop Gomez's ministry. You know, So I would be ancillary to him. But the same basic idea, and, and I sense that when I'm in my pastoral region and I'm operating either as a, as a teacher or liturgically, that's it. You know, I'm the, I'm the father of that community. Um, and the intimacy of the connection to Christ from which radiates outwards this active perfection, that would be a way of bringing these images together. It seems like father's a much better image than boss or CEO. Or, <laughs> oh, yeah. Because <laughs> a boss doesn't really care about you necessarily. Right. They love you. They want your productivity or whatever. But a father will give his it, own life for his kids. Yeah, and that, absolutely right. It, it's the great master image. But I'd also add, though, the bishop and the priest are priests, prophets, and kings. And that's an important thing. Is I do a lot of administrative work now. I did when I was rector, too. Go to meetings. I'm in a deanery meeting. We're talking about a lot of, you know, everyday things. I go to a bishop's meeting downtown, and we talk about, you know, parking lots and taxes and money. It's important in that context to remember, I try to, okay, that's part of the kingly function. So you're, you're trying to order the charisms of the community and direct people on the path toward eternal life. You're a king. You're trying to expand the, the boundaries of Eden outward, you know. Uh, fine. Part of that involves things like money and hiring and firing and roofs and uh, taxation and insurance contracts. and It just does. And so instead of saying, oh, I have my spiritual thing over here, then I got this annoying business side of my life, is rather to say, no, that's part of my kingly responsibility. And uh, to spiritualize it rather than to divorce it from the spiritual is to you know, transform the water into wine, is to elevate that very ordinary stuff into its proper spiritual uh, uh, purpose. Yeah, the catechism compares the pastoral role, the governing role, to the good shepherd. You know, if the sheep right. are wandering off, you got to build a fence, keep them in, go right. after them. There's some real practical stuff to this. Yeah, and, and be tough sometimes, which you have to as a bishop. You have to discipline in different ways, and uh, you have to say no the way a good father says no um, from time to time. So that's all part of it. You know what surprised me in reading the document on bishops from Vatican II was constantly, over and over again, with their head, the Pope. Bishops don't yeah. act without the Pope. They have collegial unity with their head. And so we're talking about headship of a bishop yeah. and his people, that then you have this headship of Peter with these bishops. Is that something you think about often? Yeah, because in my, I have a residence out in Santa Barbara, which is where my pastoral region is centered. But I've also got a couple rooms at the cathedral in L.A. And um, in that space, I have the famous bull you know, from uh, Pope Francis that's officially naming me as a bishop. And beautiful calligraphy and with all the you know ribbons on it and so on. But there it is, and it's right there in my line of sight. I put it there right by, by the 
uh, right across from my chair. And it, it's from Francis, you know, the Servus Servorum Dei, uh, the, the Pope who is, uh, you know, appointing me and making me a bishop. So yes, I'm connected to him in a very significant way. And I want that before my eyes all the time. Archbishop Gomez also gave me as a gift, it's beautiful, um, the apostolic succession uh, line. You know, so we can trace it in the case of most bishops back to about the 16th century. But you know, who ordained me a bishop, who ordained him a bishop, et cetera, et cetera. And it stretches back, as I say, to like the mid-16th century. Um, my line includes um, uh, Pius X, and there's another uh, couple of popes on that line. Cool. So that to me is very moving. You know, now we lost track of the records after the mid 16th century, but back it goes until one of the apostles put hands on someone and made them a, a their successor. You know, so that's a link as well across time now to Peter, uh, the intimate friend of Jesus. And so, yeah, that stuff is is you know prominent in my mind. And then you take that reality out to the people in the parish. Right. You mentioned something last night that when you show right. up, people get a sense something has oh, yeah. come, right? Someone. And again, it's, it's not, oh, hey, Robert Barron's here. You know, most people in my, my neck of the woods there, we have a lot of Hispanics. They, they wouldn't know me from uh, my evangelical work. They don't know me from, from Adam, really. But I'm the bishop. The bishop's come. They don't care about me, so that's great. They care, the bishop has come. And the bishop, the guy with the hat, he's, he's a link to Francis, and a link to Peter, you know? And that's important. And when you especially go out, I remember I had a wonderful experience going out to the most remote parish in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. is a little parish in a place called Nukoyama. It's about an hour and 45 minute drive from Santa Barbara, way up in the mountains. And it's a very small, very isolated community. And I'm sure people up there, again, have no idea who I am as like a religious writer or, or you know, a celebrity or whatever. So I show up. And, you know, just driving, driving, driving. You kind of, you know, and then, oh, there it is. And we pull in. Well, there was the whole community, the kids, balloons. And, and I, I had to think, what's going on? Oh, they're, they're here to greet me. You know, and I get out of the car and the balloons go up and, and the kids come forward and they sing a song. And, well, what is that? See, what is that? It's not, oh, hey, Robert Barron's here. It's, no, here's the bishop is here who links us to Jose Gomez, who links us to Francis, who links us to Peter, who links us to Jesus. And he's come all the way to New Kuyama, to this little parish in the middle of nowhere. But that's it, that's the power. That's one of my favorite moments actually in the year and a half of, of my Episcopal work is that visit. And I love the idea too, as I've come to understand it better, when the bishop enters the church door in the vestments, which are sort of glorified, clothing yeah. of salvation, garments of salvation as Christ, walking through the nave, which is the new earth, stepping into the sanctuary, which yeah. is the new heaven, ministering at the Holy of Holies as Christ. I mean, you could sit in your room alone and imagine that, but in the Catholic sacramental system, you get to experience that tangibly with all five senses. Music, yeah. literature, vestments, stained glass, stonework, sculpture, wood, everything yeah. is involved. The whole world comes to you. Know, there's a, I'll tell you this story. When I became a bishop, uh, Bishop Ed Clark, who's one of the auxiliaries in L.A., gave each, there were three of us ordained, gave each of us a gift of, of these little vimps, you know, the little kind of shawl that the servers wear. And it has your coat of arms on the back. And it's it, it's a very stately looking thing. You put it on, a, especially on a kid, because it comes down almost to the floor. And I know there's some people, and I've heard it. Oh, look at that. Who's this guy think he is and with all this fancy stuff? And I keep saying, that is not it. That's the wrong way to think about it. It's what you're saying. And I find the kids, for example, they love it 
when when you like my my deacon will say, oh no, you come here, come here, and they put these garments on them, and the kids they stand up straighter and prouder, and he said, now now take your hands so you're not meant to don't touch the miter or get it dirty, so you hold it through this cloth. Well, it's not to say to aggrandize the ego of the bishop. It's not. It's what you're talking about, Dennis. It's the it's the beauty of that display, you know, to make as splendid as possible this this encounter with Christ, which is sacramentally made visible, you know. So all those touches are important. Yeah, without that sacramental medium, the encounter is impossible. Right, because see, we're, we're a lot of us are Gnostics, and it's Nietzsche. Well, that's I do a whole podcast on the philosophy there, but. Uh, a lot of modernity is a revival of the Gnostic problem. And I think what happens is when that comes in, you get a Nietzschean uh, uh, power fills the, the vacuum. For people who don't know, what's, what's the Gnostic problem? I, I'll, in a nutshell, I'd say it's this great divorce between spirit and matter. It's a demonization of matter, elevation of spirit, so that matter is suspect. And you see it in a million ways in our culture. Uh, it's a, a privileging of the interior over the exterior. It's a certain demonization of the, of the material. Or see, our sacramental system, going back to Christ himself and the Israelite tradition, but being expressed in someone like Irenaeus as early as the second century, massively stresses the body. When you read Irenaeus, the first great theologian after Paul, it's the body, the body, the body, he keeps saying over and over again, whether it's the resurrection or the Eucharist or the liturgy or the church, it's the body. Because his enemy, his enemy was the Gnostic heresy. And so... That's what you're expressing, you guys, in this liturgical language of, of color and texture and cloth and candle and smoke and, and uh, water, wine and oil, all, everything we've been talking about. It's the body. It's the body that matters, you know? It's the cheese head on the guy at the Green Bay Packers fan, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> how do you know he's a Green Bay fan? Well, he has the cheese head on. Yeah. Like, how do you yeah. encounter all these things? Well, that's just, at some level, this is such a human principle. You don't have to be a, you know, a, a Catholic theologian to get this. Human yeah. beings do this all the time, yet they get confused about it the other half of the time. Well, that's, that's the Aquinas. I mean, when he's, he's asked, to, or he poses the question about sacraments, and he said, well, if we're angels, we wouldn't need them, but we're made up of body and soul, so we need both form and matter. And I've always found that's a pretty darn good explanation. You know, it's pretty simple. We need the form that appeals to our minds. We need the matter that appeals to our senses. And that's a basic liturgical principle. Do you find people uh, accept that? Like, do they think, oh, that's just high church fussy ritualism? No, I find actually when I, like the Aquinas principle, I think when you lay that out, people go, oh, yeah. Because it's your point, Chris, about that's just human, you know. But, uh, no, I I fight on the the question of, of the vimps. <laughs> I do. When people, you know, I sense like us oh, too. That, we we fight about it too. Isn't that kind of fussy? I, no, no, no. I said, look at those. It's it, look at the kids. Look how the kids get involved. Look, look at the 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 level of their participation increases because they know something is. You know, often in my confirmation homily, I'll end by citing uh, my my motto, which is from Aquinas. When the Lord said to him, you know, Thomas, you've written well of me. What would you have as a reward? And he said, Non nisi te, Domine. Right? I'll have nothing except you, Lord. So I use that as an illustration. But what I do is I'll say, hey, hey, could, could you come out here? And I'll gesture to one of the servers with the, with the fimp on. Could you come out here and stand in the middle? And I turn him around and I, and I read the Latin. You know, but see, I, I like the tactile, the visual. And, and oh, what's going on? And, oh, yeah, look at that kid wearing that thrall. You know? uh, that's Catholic imagination. And if you make it about itself, it's a problem. But yeah, if you sure. make it about the revelation and do it right. in its fullness, that's... Active participation for people in their own process of sanctification, and the bishop really does that at the high level. Right, right. 
Well, look at the, I remember again, Cardinal George, you know, loved the Ecce Sacerdos Magnus song, you know, so at the, at the liturgies or at the ordinations, uh, behold the great priest, you know. Oh, look at him, uh, the great priest, and what, you know, what a big <laughs> ego he's got. Well, no, the great priest is Christ. It's not, it's Cardinal George. It's not, the, it's, it, behold Christ, the great priest, but now sacramentally made present in, in this bishop coming in or, you know. But when you lose that, then Nietzsche fills the vacuum, and that's what we see today. Yeah, I, I, I've learned a lot through doing this podcast, and we've talked a lot about the altar being Christ, and yeah. you know, having having a, a, a beautiful altar is not saying we're going to throw money at this thing right. because we want it to look beautiful, right. but no, we're saying that this we're going to pay a lot of attention to this because it is Christ. And Dennis has talked a lot about, you know, some people building uh, altars that are broken and a piece is missing, and that's missing the point because if it is Christ, then we need to show it in in Christ's beauty, and mm-hmm. it's the same thing that we're talking about here. No, quite right, quite right. Yeah. My my bishop in uh, Lacrosse is uh, William Patrick Callahan, who's a conventional Franciscan, yeah. and he'll think, well, the the at least the the popular notion of Franciscan spirituality is very uh, poverty and and the rest. And the bishop would say, listen, if you want to sleep on the floor, you go ahead and do that. But when you step into the sanctuary and you're going to celebrate the liturgy of Jesus Christ, you give him the best that you can. And that will radiate what him. was Saint Francis interested in? And we know now from the most recent um, uh, investigations the letters we have and so on. Francis was very interested in altar linens and tabernacles and chalices. And one of his first moves when he get to a church is make sure that everything was just right liturgically. So that's a weird romanticism that would say, oh, who cares? And let's just, you know, say mass with a coffee mug. That's not St. Francis at all. On the contrary. But that's, you know, Chesterton got that. It's a wonderful paradox of, of being Christian that, yes, I'm going to wear the the hair shirt to punish my my sinful nature, but then outside that hair shirt, like Thomas More, I'm going to wear the splendid robes of office, and it's the both and that makes you Catholic. That's full conscious active participation in the liturgy. If it's not full, yeah. how can it be as fully conscious? So that's what we've been talking about all the time. You give me the look, Jesse. Are we are we out of time here? No, I, I yeah. I mean, I think it probably go to a liturgy question here. But is there anything else, uh, Bishop, that you would like to add? And well, it's good being with you guys, and I've enjoyed the show. I've heard it not every time, but I've heard it a number of times. And uh, believe in what you're doing. You know, I think the uh, Liturgical Institute is, is terrific, and uh, I believe in it. So thank you for the work that you do. And I think uh, there's a lot of education we need in the church around the liturgy. And the thing got off the rails for different reasons. And uh, But you know, as you guys do it joyfully and with a sense of the great Catholic tradition, and it's not a, not a you know, power struggle of any kind, it's recovering this wonderful sacramental imagination and the beauty of the Catholic tradition along with its truth is what's going to carry the day uh, in our you know, very hyper-secularized time. So anyway, that's my little plug for the liturgical institute. <laughs> well, that's it. You, you talk about happy warriors all the time and uh, yeah. it's a great image for, I guess, any evangelist, yeah. minded person, be a happy warrior for Christ in the liturgy. All right, well, thank you very much and uh, I think it's time to answer our liturgy question. Let's do it. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. 
Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend a liturgical institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, this week we have a question from Anonymous. Can we call Anonymous Rudiger? No. Oh, come on. A question from Rudiger, yes. (laughs) Anytime we have a question from Anonymous, Dennis wants to just name the uh, said person Rudiger. Rudiger, yes. All right, so I guess, all right, Rudiger says, Dear Liturgy guys, thank you for an excellent podcast. I have a question regarding the use of pop, praise, and worship music during adoration for teens. It seems... It is popular to bring in a band with a guitar, piano, drums, etc. to play music throughout adoration as a way to get teens excited about Eucharistic adoration. Our youth minister does this once a month. What is your opinion on the liturgical appropriateness of this? Uh, So, Rediger, we have an answer for you. Dennis, you have the document. Uh, Yes. In fact, the church does give a little direction on this. What's this document called, Chris? Holy Communion and the Worship of the Eucharist Outside of Mass, yes, 1974. The, the Worship of the Eucharist. Now, it, it doesn't really say what kind of songs to sing. In fact, when you look at the structure of the rite as it explains it in um, paragraph 61, it says it starts with a song, and then there's exposition, and then it says during adoration you can have readings, homilies, songs, ad libitum, which means sort of freely sung. So it doesn't really say you have to sing Tom Demirgo over and over again, or you can't sing anything more recently composed. I think it's really a prudence question. You know, what makes sense? If you were standing before your king, what would you sing to him? You'd want it to show your joy, your, your adoration, your humility, your delight in being in the king's presence. So uh, a lot of praise and worship music is about that. It's uh, I desire you, Lord. I am with you, Lord. Thank you for being with me, Lord. It's uh, often one-on-one. It's kind of okay. You know, if you were talking to your dad that way and you'd be like, hey, dad, I'm so glad you're my dad and I'm so glad I'm your son and I love you and I miss you when you're not here. Like, that, that's all right. Uh, mm-hmm. Eucharistic adoration is primarily um, liturgical or devotional, Chris? That's a good question. I think it's a it's devotion kind of, that's yes. as liturgical as devotions can get. Yeah, it it is. It's kind of a hybrid isn't quite the right word. I mean, it, because uh, the benediction seems liturgical, exposition and benediction. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's that's very true. Uh, but within the, that period of adoration is um, uh, is a time where there is kind of some devotional, individual contact yeah. with uh, with Christ. So it is sort of in both has kind of a foot in both uh, both worlds. Right, and the right has these bookends, which are. Fairly prescribed. Strictly you, liturgical. You have a tantamergo, something about the Eucharist, and then you have um, things at the end. But in between, that's your one-on-one time with Jesus. So is it offensive to the people and offensive to God? Then no. <laughs> is it uh, more private in devotion uh, in, its, in its nature? Sure, that's fine. I think they used to rec- recommend not, you shouldn't pray the rosary during periods of adoration. And then... Pope John Paul II started doing it. He was so like, they kind of relaxed on that. He was like, what the what? <laughs> so, so yeah, that's a, that's a devotional prayer that uh, we see the popes doing and now is is uh, somewhat encouraged again by the by the Holy See too. So that would be similar to this point you're making. Right. And I guess the question is, does the music teach you to be contemplative? Does it teach you to be still in the presence of the Lord? Um, does it teach you to calm your passions and your mind and really concentrate on the things of God? And then at the end, perhaps you have a, 
more celebratory. We're so glad we just were quiet with you and we really love you. Um, so you have the, um, I want to be one with you. I need you. I'm missing you. And then at the end, boom, I'm so glad you're here. And the, uh, the benediction at the closing specifically says in the instruction, a Eucharistic song. So a song about what you're doing. So it does seem like the right envisions a certain stability, something about what you're doing at the beginning and the end and in between, there's a lot of freedom. And everything else is prudence about whether it's uh, the kind of thing you would sing to your Lord, King, Savior, mm -hmm. God, and Father. And you can't go wrong with doing, you know, maybe some praise and worship, but then also uh, scheduling some time of silence, uh, silent prayer. That's always a very good thing, too. So, Rutiger, I hope that answers your question. And if any of our other listeners out there have questions for the Liturgy Guys, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you, and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.